0: I trust everyone had a good Thanksgiving. It's funny, I was watching, you know, I kind of wanted to show you some of the clips, but I didn't really have time to get it together. Some of the uh, people being interviewed about Thanksgiving, why, you know, why do we celebrate Thanksgiving? who was it that uh, held the first Thanksgiving you know um, who were the people who first landed and where did they land and uh, the reason I would have liked to show you the clips is it would prove the point that I make over and over again about our public education system because most people don't know they don't know either they don't even know the word pilgrim And if they do, they don't know where the pilgrims came from. They don't know why they came here. One person said, for land and money. Well, there was a lot of land. There wasn't any money. And we know that many of them died within the first year. They came here, as we all know, for religious freedom, right? To worship God according to the dictates of their own hearts and minds, without the interference of the government. They fled England because they were under persecution there by the establishment church. You know, in Europe, it's not uncommon for the various countries to have their own state church. And um, I was just reading about in Sweden, the state church there, of course, for a thousand years or more has been the Lutheran church. But the participation level of people in Sweden going to church is between 1 and 3 percent. Although 60 percent of the people still pay taxes to support the state church. And of course, the state church really throughout Europe created the problem of people thinking they were automatically going to heaven because they were born into the state church. And of course, England separated itself from the Catholic Church at the time of Henry VIII because he kind of liked getting married over and over again. And the Catholic Church wouldn't endorse his divorces, so he started his own church, the Anglican Church, and that became the State Church of England. To just, you know, shorten it up here, the Pilgrims fled, first of all. Does anybody know where they went first before they came to America? Holland, right. They went to Holland. They went to Holland where they actually did pretty well there. Leiden, Leiden, right. They went to Leiden in Holland or the Netherlands and ultimately then of course they made arrangements to set sail for the United States of America. But the sad thing is that so few people in our nation today know anything about our heritage, our founding. But there's a much greater likelihood that as believers... We will be aware of these things because they're important to us. They're they're valuable to us. We cherish them. But it's sad to know that these things are no longer being taught in our public schools. In fact, if anything, there is an ongoing effort to degrade, defame, and shame the founding of our nation. And um, so we need to pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. We've seen some encouraging things over the past couple years, but it is an ongoing battle to retain our heritage, which the reason it's important, number one reason it's important to retain our heritage is because our heritage is that of being one nation under God. And without God, we're lost. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Amen? Okay, I do have a prayer request here before we get into the message. Helen. Quintana I believe Helen attends the Tuesday evening Bible study is that correct Debbie she's been struggling with um, kidney stones having a lot of pain hasn't been able to come to church for the past couple weeks so we want to pray for her father we lift Helen up to you now pray for your comfort for your encouragement most of all for your healing we ask you to reach out your healing hand and heal her either cause those kidney stones to pass or cause them to be dissolved And we pray that the pain would uh, leave her body even this very day, even as we're gathered together here. Your word says whenever two or more would agree as touching anything, you would hear that prayer. And so we agree together this morning for healing for Helen and Father for others in our midst that may be struggling with various health issues. Lord, there are those in this room right now who are struggling with health issues and we pray for your healing touch to be upon each one. Lord, we know that you are the God who heals, and we ask that you would just pour out your healing oil upon this congregation, and we ask now also that you'd bless the study of your word as we finish out this book of 2 Peter, Father. It's been a great study. pray that this final study would just be the frosting on the cake, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. And this will finish us out today. I said to my wife, I said, well, we're going to finish the book of 2 Peter today. And she said, maybe. (laughs) So, (laughs) she's not a pessimist. She's just a realist. I think we'll make it. We'll see. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. We've already prayed, so we're just going to jump right in. Therefore, beloved, of course, this is a term that Peter has used repeatedly. And, and I believe with all my heart that he is sincere. He's not just, you know, buttering his people up or whatever. But he really considers those to whom he is writing, his brothers and sisters in the Lord, as beloved. Peter's the same one who said, above all, love one another fervently. And so we often refer to the Apostle John as the apostle of love. And that's a major theme in John's writings. But it's also a major theme in Peter's writings. And certainly one could argue that few people in human history have experienced the love of Christ to the degree that Peter did because, as we know, he betrayed the Lord. He denied the Lord three times on the night of the Lord's betrayal. And yet he was fully restored into right relationship with the Lord Jesus. Peter certainly knew a lot about the love of God. And he addresses his readers as beloved. And he displays the heart of a true shepherd of the flock. He learned well from his master. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus called them, the 12, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. Peter was there. He heard this directly from the mouth of the Lord. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And Jesus modeled that, as we know, nowhere else as profoundly as on the night of the Last Supper when he stripped down to his undergarments, got down on his hands and knees, and washed the disciples' feet. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you... We know James and John had a thing going on there, didn't they? They asked their mommy, Mom, would you please ask Jesus if we could sit on his right and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom? The sons of thunder, and yet they had to ask mommy to ask Jesus for them. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he's our role model. He's our example in leadership, whatever degree we might find ourselves in a place of leadership. And Peter learned that well. And that's why we see him continuously referring to his readers. He's not talking down to them. He's talking across to them as equals, as peers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 5.2 Peter himself in his first epistle says shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers not by compulsion not because somebody has forced you into a position of leadership authority that you really don't want or because perhaps uh, as Paul wrote some think that godliness is a means to financial gain not by compulsion but willingly not for dishonest gain, but eagerly shepherd the flock of God, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And so Peter, the words of Peter himself, showing us very clearly that Peter had a full understanding of what it meant to be a shepherd of the flock of God. So therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Now, of course, if you weren't here last week, you might not know what these things are. Uh, verse 13, 2 Peter 3.13. After Peter goes through the whole section where he's talking about the last days and how there's going to be scoffers who are going to come and mock the second coming. Where is the promise of his coming? Everything continues on as it always has been. Those who would mock the idea that Christ would actually literally physically return to the earth Peter predicts that will be a hallmark and a trademark of the last days. And as I've pointed out over the last several weeks, we might possibly be living in a time now where fewer people than ever are either expecting the return of the Lord or are desiring the return. Those who believe he's coming, many don't want him to come. And there are many others that simply don't believe he's going to come. And the Bible says that's exactly when he's going to come. Like a thief in the night. So these are the things that Peter had been speaking about leading up to this verse. He talks about the destruction of all things. And then, finally, we talked about this last week, the chain of events involved in what we read about in the Scriptures that's referred to as the day of the Lord. The rapture of the church, the the tribulation, seven years of tribulation, God's judgment, the outpouring of His wrath, On an unbelieving world. The second coming of Christ where we come with Him. then the rapture He comes for the saints. We meet Him in the clouds in the air. At the second coming we come with Him. We return with Him to judge the world. To rule over the world for a thousand years. This is all part of the day of the Lord. And after that. The destruction of this present universe. By fire and then the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. After that, there will be no more time, only eternity. These are the things Peter says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Now, I suppose most of us here today, we were looking forward to Thanksgiving. You think about all the great food you're going to eat, the family and friends that you're going to see. And then now we're looking forward to Christmas, right, and the anticipation of gifts given, gifts received, the service, which this year is going to be the night before Christmas Eve. Something different. Looking forward to all of the joyous celebrations and things that encompass the holidays, but Peter's focus is a little bigger, a little broader, looking forward to these things, these eternal things. Peter, speaking here as God's mouthpiece, we know that all the writers of the Old and New Testament were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so God is exhorting us to be forward-looking. Some people, sadly, get caught up in the past. You know, we talk about the good old days. I always wax nostalgic when I watch movies set in, you know, earlier parts of the 20th century, say, you know, my parents' era, my own era growing up in the 50s and 60s. And I, I enjoy the, uh, you know, I, I just watched that movie again, The Man Who Invented Christmas with It's about how uh, Charles Dickens came to write A Christmas Carol. I love that era, that period. And I don't know about you, sometimes I think, boy, I wish I could have lived then, you know. But unfortunately, some people get caught up in the past in a very negative way. They can't deal with the here and now because they're trapped somehow in their past, whether it's a series of negative experiences or a series of positive experiences. The negative experiences can put you in bondage. The positive experiences can also keep you looking back rather than forward. Some people are caught up in the here and now. They can't see past this day. Now, on the one hand, there's a certain way in which that's a good thing. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Take one day at a time. And so we have a tendency perhaps to get ahead of ourselves and worry about what might happen tomorrow or the next day. And I, I've known people like that as well. They're always thinking about you know, what bad thing could happen tomorrow or the next day. So much so that they can't function in the here and now because they're worried about what's going to happen in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. But as believers, what really should be keeping us going, keeping us motivated, keeping us joyful, and that's that's a burden I have on my heart for people close to me and then even people not so close to me, but something that I've noticed, maybe you've noticed this too, in this time in which we're living. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. But I'm not seeing near as much joy in the lives of those around me and even perhaps in myself either, as I should be seeing. This is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is a condition, a heart attitude, a way of thinking, a way of living that goes above and beyond our circumstances and our situations. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is a new car till you get the first dent or the first scratch. Same thing with a new guitar. Till you get the first dent or the first scratch or whatever. Happiness is the new puppy till he grows up to be a big slob who tears up everything and. Digs up your yard. But when he he was a puppy, he was so cute, wasn't he? Ah, the good old days when he was a puppy. But joy goes beyond all that. Joy is our position in Christ. And as believers, God's desire, his plan, is that we should go through our lives filled with his joy. And I think we all need more of it. And the way we get more of it is by taking our eyes off of the past and even not being unduly preoccupied with the present. I mean, we have to live here, right? Day by day, Jesus said, take one day at a time. You've got to live your life. You've got to fulfill your obligations and so forth. But at the end of the day, God wants us to have our eyes on the prize, eternity. Looking forward to these things the things that you and I look forward to in this life here and now they may pan out they may not and quite often we get all excited about something and it doesn't turn out to be as great as we think it's gonna be right and then other times we're we're not excited at all it turns out to be much better than we expected but the real consistency It's what lies ahead in eternity because what God has shown us in His Word and even above and beyond that, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But those things are absolute. They are guaranteed. The promises of God, as we also spoke of last week. 3.13, Nevertheless, we In spite of all these things, the mocking, the the unbelief. And Peter spent a lot of time in the first part of this chapter on false teachers. The warnings. And yet, nevertheless, verse 13, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter, as God's mouthpiece, exhorts us to look, be forward-looking, setting our sights on eternity as opposed to the immediate, the temporary, the here and now. And then he says, be diligent. Be diligent in that which Peter is about to tell us to do. We are to be serious. We're to be dedicated. We're to, we're to be committed. Be diligent. It's not something to be taken lightly. Be diligent about what? To be found by Him. And that's a reminder that even though we're not always consciously aware of it because, again, we are caught up in everyday life, Christ is constantly watching over us. He dwells in us by His Holy Spirit and He is continuously surveying our hearts and our minds. Paul said, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's what Christ knows, what Christ sees, that counts. Be diligent to be found by Him. Psalm 139, 23, we all remember this, verses 23, 24, the words of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my anxieties. See, the King James, I believe it says thoughts. But anxieties really defines what David is talking about here. This is New King James. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. So David acknowledges the fact that even though, according to God, David was a man after God's own heart. But David knew his own heart Lord search me know my anxieties see if there be any wicked way in me I realize there could be a wicked way there and I may be hiding it covering it up ignoring it Lord please don't let that stay there search me know me try me and lead me in the way everlasting be diligent to be found by him In peace. We talked about joy. The kingdom of God, Paul writes, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Three vital elements of a joyful life in Christ. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace. When the Lord searches our hearts, his expectation is to find us in peace, at rest in Him. And this requires diligence on our part. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Now I've shared with you before my life verse is Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But this would be possibly second in line as a life verse for me. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, from the smallest thing to the largest. God cares about every detail of our lives. And it's only in yielding over and submitting to Him in every area of our lives that we can hope to enter into this peace and this rest that He has for us, that He wants for us, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Here we are on Thanksgiving weekend. That's a vitally important element in our prayer lives. As we approach God, bringing our requests, bringing our prayers and supplications that we acknowledge that which He has done, the blessings that He has poured out upon us for very basic things. I often find myself thanking God for life for being alive it's a precious gift if I'd never been born I could have never known him and I could never have had the opportunity to live forever in his eternal kingdom life is a precious thing but not just this temporary life the eternal life that we can have in Christ By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's okay to talk to God. It's okay to ask God for things. But it's also good to thank Him for that which He's already done, for your salvation. Thank thank Him for Christ. Thank you for Jesus for dying on the cross for my sins. It might sound rudimentary, elemental, but there's nothing wrong with thanking Him over and over again for what He's done for us. And now here's what Paul says will happen when we do this. If we bring all those anxieties to the Lord. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious. Instead, bring it to God. Give it to Him. And the peace of God. Jesus said, Peace give I to you, not as the world gives. To the world, peace is the absence of conflict. But to God, peace is... Is being able to rest in him, knowing that he has everything under control. And you're no longer his enemy, but you're now the friend of God, like Abraham was called the friend of God. I no longer call you servants, Jesus said, but friends. When you can know in your heart of hearts that you are indeed the friend of God, you will find that place of peace. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, That's the kind of peace that we have in situations where normally we would be freaking out, where people all around us might be freaking out. Someone's been seriously injured. The California fires, the fires ravaging California. If you were to go through that crowd and find the believers and you would see that in spite of the fact they've lost everything and maybe they've lost some loved ones. They can be at peace, because that peace that surpasses all understanding is guarding their hearts and their minds through Christ Jesus. Peter is telling us to be diligent, to be found by Him, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who dwells within us, in peace. And it does require diligence. It requires effort to maintain that position that we have in Christ. Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, that's where we find that place of peace where we're not under the circumstances but we're over them in Jesus. The next part is pretty challenging. To be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless wow I mean that smacks of perfection does it not I'd like a show of hands for everyone here who is perfect thank you (laughs) nobody but this harkens back to verses 11 and 12 Peter says therefore since all these things will be dissolved everything that was our old Jesus movement term It's okay, bro, it's all going to burn. And that's biblical. That's theologically sound. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We talked about this, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. May have been last week. Time flies when you're having fun. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, holy conduct and godliness is a given from God's perspective That's what he expects of his people. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Without spot and blameless. Holy conduct and godliness. Man, this is a. God has set a pretty high bar here. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, being forward looking. When I say forward looking, I'm meaning forward looking as in looking towards eternity. And if you read Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame. The writer of Hebrews talks about that in chapter 11 where all of the Old Testament patriarchs were looking forward to a city not built with human hands. They were for the most part tent dwellers, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were tent dwellers. They didn't have any permanent abode. They were nomads, tent dwellers, And they looked forward to a city not built by human hands. It was speaking of the new Jerusalem, which is our final destination. That's where you and I are going to live. That's where Jesus is preparing those many mansions for us. Being forward-looking and setting our sights on eternity, I believe, is that which motivates us to holy conduct and godliness. We've talked about this so much over the past several weeks how important it is in spite of what the scoffers say. And the scoffers are in the church as well as outside the church saying, you, Jesus, I, in fact, I just heard somebody say this the other day. Oh, Jesus isn't coming in our lifetime. Really? Where did you get your information? And as I've talked about the fact, I believe God wants every generation of believers to believe that Jesus is coming in their lifetime. The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ which means he could come at any moment. Oh, this has to happen and that has to happen. Really? Well, you better let God know because I think God thinks that he can come anytime he wants. Being forward-looking, looking to eternity, believing what God wants us to believe because it's been laid out for us in his word that Jesus could come at any moment. Therefore, we should be watchful We should be waiting. We should be ready. We should be forward-looking. That is what will promote holy conduct and godliness in our lives and without spot and blameless. But inasmuch as we have not yet been perfected, how can we ever hope to be found by Him without spot and blameless? Well, there are so many verses that point to that. Again, one of my favorites, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So it's very important that we recognize and acknowledge that we are sinners. And even when we're born again, though our goal, our desire is to not sin, we are conflicted. There's this ongoing battle between the old nature and the new nature, the old man and the new man, Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. And we will battle that battle for the rest of our lives until we see Jesus face to face and we know him even as we are known and then we are perfected. But that hasn't happened yet. So we will have to endure a lifetime struggle, the flesh versus the spirit. So John lays it out. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And sadly, there are some I think that get to that place that they've come to believe that now that they're born again, spirit-filled, and so forth. Oh, no. In fact, that old song from the 60s, kind of leading into the Jesus movement days, there was a flood of pseudo-Christian songs on secular radio. One of them was Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. How many of you remember that song? Going up, spirit in the sky. It's where I'm going to go when I die. And in one of the lines of the song, he says, I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned. I've got a friend in Jesus. That is not theologically sound. The Kentucky headhunters redid the song, and they fixed it. They said, I am a sinner. I know that I've sinned. But I've got a friend in Jesus. So first of all, We have to make sure that we don't fall under this misconception. And I know some people get offended. I've had people get offended when I refer to myself or to the body of Christ as sinners. Oh, no, we're not sinners. We're saints. Well, I think we're both. In Christ, yes, we are saints. But in reality, we are sinners saved by grace. And so it's important. John says if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourselves. The truth is not in you. But here's the encouraging part if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm telling you, this scripture is one that I hang on to for dear life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And it's the only hope we have. For us to be, without, to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, this is the only way that can happen. We have got to practice confession in our lives. Anytime and every time we become aware that we have once again fallen short, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we are consistent to confess our sins. And then his promise, which you can take to the bank, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, John once again reiterates the point. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. And so, again, sadly, sometimes people try to justify their sins and give all the reasons why they did it and why it's not a sin, but that's not going to get you anywhere. It's confession. And so here's an interesting thought for you. We know that sin separates us from God, and so that's why we need to confess our sins. We need to repent. We need to ask the Father to apply the precious blood of Christ to our sinful hearts, to wash us, to cleanse us. But it's actually not our sin that will keep us from relationship with God, but the denial of that sin that will separate us from him. Jesus said, All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. He won't say to you, Get out of here, you vile, wretched sinner. Go clean yourself up and then come. No, he says, come just as you are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not your sin that will keep you from relationship with God. It's your denial of that sin that will keep you from relationship with God. So that's how it's possible for us to fulfill this exhortation given to us by the Apostle Peter that we're to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, who became the sacrifice for our sins, we can be found in him without spot and blameless as we confess our sins and we repent over and over again. Peter thought that he was a pretty spiritual guy. He found out he wasn't. But he, uh, he comes to Jesus and he says, um, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven Now, seven in the Bible is a number of what? Perfection, fulfillment, completion. So Peter thought, wow, that'd be pretty spiritual, man, if I forgave him seven times. Jesus said, no, Peter, 70 times seven, which is an analogy for an unlimited number of times. No matter how many times your brother sins against you, you are to forgive him. And the, and the deeper analogy there is that Jesus is referring to the fact that no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we fall short, if we will go to him and ask for forgiveness, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. See, the enemy will try to beat you up with that. It's all over for you, buddy. You know, you're really going to go ask God to forgive you again? How many times have you gone to God and asked for forgiveness? You know, you're washed up, you're through, forget it. You're a flake, you're a loser. Okay, sure, I am, yes. But I'm God's flake, I'm God's loser, I'm his son, I'm his child, and he's promised me, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and there's no limit on God's forgiveness. Do you find that to be good news? I do. Now, that doesn't give us a license to sin. Oh, well, I can just go do whatever I want because I know God will forgive me. No. God forbid, as Peter wrote. Shall Shall we sin more that grace may abound all the more? No. But it is comforting to know that in our weaknesses, in our imperfections, in our sinful nature, as we strive the flesh versus the spirit... We strive to be more like Him. We strive to be without spot and blameless. We strive for holy conduct and godliness, knowing that in this life we will never achieve perfection. It's the grace of God that sustains us. It's His grace by which we stand. Okay, verse 15, 2 Peter 3, 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now, Peter expressed this same thought in a little bit different way in verse 9. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, the promise of His return, as some count slackness or slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. See, there are perhaps some in this room today even that might not be on their way to heaven or might not have made it to heaven had He come a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen, twenty. We get impatient. We want Him to come right now That's another prayer I pray frequently. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you ever pray that prayer? Maranatha, come quickly. Lord, get us out of here. Right? Father, please tell Jesus to come and get us. I pray those kind of prayers. I don't think it's wrong. But the other side of that coin is that the longer he delays, the more people are going to get saved, and that's a good thing. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It may be frustration for those who want to leave this place and see God's judgment poured out, see the millennial kingdom of Christ established on the earth. We long for that. And at the proper time, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then that will happen. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So Peter is writing to believers who were familiar with the Apostle Paul and his writings, which were similar in content to the writings of Peter. And by the way, the consistency and continuity amongst the 40 authors of the Old Testament and New Testament are one of the many proofs that the Bible truly is a divine-inspired Word of God. You see the Holy Spirit speaking the same things or very similar things through the various different authors of both the Old and New Testament. So we shouldn't be surprised that we will find similarities between the writings of Peter and the writings of Paul. Early on there was some dispute regarding Paul's apostleship, as you may recall. He was one born out of due season. He was born after the fact. Apostles, in order to qualify... To be an apostle had to have seen the risen Christ. Paul was not one of the original 12. But you remember what happened to Paul, don't you? He encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Peter said, hey, let's roll the dice and see what God says. And they picked Matthias. I'm sure he was a great guy. You just never hear about him again. And God said, well, nice try, guys. But I have somebody else in mind. His name is Saul. We're going to change his name to Paul. And he became the true, genuine 12th apostle. But there was some dispute early on because he wasn't one of the original 12. But here Peter affirms his recognition of Paul as a genuine spokesman for God. He says, hey, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, That wisdom came from the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit was speaking through Paul, speaking through Peter. And you know, sometimes it's really encouraging. Someone will come up to me after a service and they'll say, you know, I was listening to so-and-so the other day on the radio or TV or whatever, and they were saying the exact same things that you were saying today. And I love the way the Holy Spirit does that. You can see that at different times, the Spirit of God will be speaking to pastors, teachers about the same subject matter. And it'll be happening on the West Coast and the East Coast and in between. And it's really neat to see how the Holy Spirit does that. Or they'll say, Boy, you were preaching right at me today. That message was for me. When it was just what the Holy Spirit put on my heart. Now, not only is Peter affirming the ministry of Paul here. He is telling his readers, as you can see, Paul and I are on the same page. If you trust him, you can trust me that I'm also telling you the truth because Paul was highly regarded, as was Peter. They had their issues at times, but at the end of the day, they were both apostles and they supported one another in their ministries and they had the same message because it was coming from the same Holy Spirit. Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Peter is saying that the themes covered here in his second epistle themes like the second coming, the judgment the destruction of the present heavens and earth, the new heavens and earth are also found throughout Paul's writings. Then Peter makes an interesting comment. He says in which are some things hard to understand. Now Peter is not criticizing Paul. He's simply stating that some of Paul's teaching Requires a deeper examination. Paul himself wrote about the milk of the word and the meat of the word, and there are certain portions of scripture, and uh, certainly among Paul's writings, that require some digging, some study, some effort. As we spoke of a few moments ago, being diligent. He says, In which are some things hard to understand. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Peter attests to the fact that Paul's teachings are not the problem. The problem lies with, one, people who have not submitted themselves to sound teaching of the word. And we've talked about this an awful lot around here, but there's a lot of places you can go and you will get the milk, you'll get the dessert. You'll get the whipped cream. Nothing too deep, nothing too challenging, nothing too convicting. People who have not submitted themselves, it's a choice. It's kind of like right now, we we no longer have a draft in America. We have a volunteer military. Everybody who goes in chooses to do so. That's how it is with God's army, and he will not force you to sign up he will draw you by his spirit he will reach out to you jesus said no man comes to the father unless the spirit draws him but you have the final word the final say the final choice on whether or not you want to submit yourself to the creator of all things you have to choose do you really want to grow in your spiritual life in your relationship with god because anything worth having, requires effort, does it not? If you want to be a musician, you've got to practice. Chances are the more you practice, the better you'll get. Some of it has to do with talent and ability. A lot of it has to do with hard work, military, any, any facet of life. Untaught and unstable people will not have the understanding of God's Word that they need to be stable. People that are unstable, he talks about people that are untaught and unstable, not rooted and grounded in their faith. We've talked in previous weeks about how the number one target for many of these cult groups is an immature believer. A believer who is not well taught. A believer who is not stable, who is not rooted and grounded in their faith. They know that they want to have a relationship with God, they believe in God, but they don't have a rock-solid foundation upon which to build their lives, and so when somebody comes along with the right spiel, they fall for it, and they get sucked into, you know, the Kingdom Hall or the, uh, you know, Mormon Church or what have you, or various other groups, Untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Virtually every cult and false religious group has been built around twisting, perverting, and distorting the truth of God's Word. And those who engage in these distortions, as well as those who adhere to false doctrines, will pay the ultimate price, according to Peter, destruction. They twist. to Now notice this next part is really important. He says, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter's confirming the problem lies not with Paul's teaching. So again, we have to understand what Peter's saying here. Some things that Peter teaches or Paul teaches or taught are hard to understand, but the problem is not with Paul's teaching. It's with untaught and unstable people who twist the words of the apostles, the word of God as they do also the rest of Scripture. So it's not that they just twist the words of Paul. These untaught and unstable people do the same twisting and distorting with the rest of God's Word as well. And as I've emphasized over and over again, that's why we practice going through the Scriptures verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, Because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. If you want to know what a certain verse means, as you search the scriptures, you will find other verses that will help clarify the meaning of that particular verse. But if you only pick out the ones you like and ignore the rest, chances are you're going to have a very weird, twisted theology. You will be untaught and unstable. Okay, now verse 17. You therefore, beloved. There it is again. Peter really loves his people and that's why he brings such a strong word to them about these things because he really loves the flock of God. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand. So, as would any good shepherd, Peter has forewarned his sheep about the dangers of false teachers and their twisting of the scriptures. He says, since you know this beforehand, I'm telling you right now, and I think it's safe to assume he's told them previously as well. I'm giving you fair warning, Peter says. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. And so, it would seem, Peter's warning is, that even true believers are vulnerable to the deceptiveness of false teachers. Have you ever met someone who gives every indication of truly, really loving God, but some of the things that they believe are just so wacky? I mean, when I say wacky, in light of the truth of God's word, they don't line up, they don't measure up, right? That's the plumb line. It's not what you think or I think. It's not what you believe or I believe. What does God say? And if what we think or believe doesn't, or say doesn't line up with God's Word, then we're out of whack. How is it possible that someone could give every indication of really loving God and yet their beliefs seem to be really wacky? Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. This is why we must be diligent. Remember that word Peter used? be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and there's such a simple I'm not big on formulas and recipes and, but there are some in the Bible I think and when we find them we should follow them. To me Acts 2.42 is one of the best this is the early church It's the same chapter in which the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120 in the upper room and Peter gave his first great public evangelistic message resulting in the salvation of 3,000 people. And at the end of that chapter, verse 42, towards the end, we read, Acts 2, 42, and they, the believers, the 3,000 that just got saved as well as the ones who were already followers of Christ, the apostles, the whole kit and caboodle, they continued... Steadfastly, which is very much like diligent. To be steadfast. You don't waver. You're not tossed about like the waves of the sea, as James talks about in James chapter 1. You're steadfast. They continued steadfastly in four things. Sometimes we make the kingdom of God a lot more complicated than he ever intended it to be. God made sure through his messengers... The writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the prophets, the apostles, through Jesus Christ himself, he made sure that the message was delivered in a way that everyone could understand. He didn't make it too complicated because he knows us he knows inside and out. He made us a little lower than the angels. We might be at the top of the food chain here on planet Earth, but in the heavenly sphere, we're not quite as high and that's why his love is all the more amazing acts 2 42 they continued steadfastly in one and I believe these things are given in order maybe an order of priority certainly this first one is a high priority the apostles doctrine the apostles doctrine where do you find the apostles doctrine in the New Testament right it's not Rick Warren's doctrine Joel Osteen's doctrine it's not even Chuck Smith's doctrine my pastor that I he's with the Lord now but I still love him and admire him and look to him as a mentor it's the Apostles doctrine it's not Sarah Young's doctrine or lack thereof you really can't call what she writes doctrine by any stretch of the imagination the Apostles doctrine they were steadfast in the Apostles' Doctrine. Fellowship. And yet there are so many believers who fail to engage regularly in Christian fellowship. I'm not talking about bowling for believers or golfing for God. Karate for the king. jiu for Jesus. I'm talking about fellowship. It's, a, it's what happens here before and after the service, for those who choose to come early or stay late and interact with one another, talk to one another, get to know each other, go to a koinonia group, small group, women's Bible study, men's prayer. That's fellowship. Koinonia. They were steadfast in these things, which means these things were the priorities in the lives of these early believers. The apostles' doctrine. Being in the Word yourself, submitting to the teaching of the Word. Fellowship, the breaking of bread, communion, which is next week, here for us next Sunday. And in prayers. You really can't accomplish the things that Peter's talking about here at the end of chapter 3 of Second Peter without being steadfast in these things. This is where the diligence comes in. This is where the effort comes in. I think people, many believers live under the misconception that because salvation is so easy you simply put your faith in Christ believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household as Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer to as many as received him, to as many as believed on his name, he gave them the right to become the sons of God you can be born again in a moment by putting your faith in Christ as the savior of your soul and so then we think somehow well okay now that that's happened tiptoe through the tulips you know strolling through the Rose Garden getting saved is the easiest part because Jesus did all the heavy lifting I've said it before salvation is a free gift being a disciple of Christ will cost you everything That's a message that God's people need to hear. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. I'm having a hard time seeing it any other way except that Peter is telling us that absolutely any and every one of us is vulnerable to false teaching and deception. I've witnessed it in my own life with people that I've known who have given in fallen into false teaching, deception. And this is another important thing that believers need to know and understand. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of our souls, but we are the caretakers of our salvation. We are responsible. Jesus did the heavy lifting, but Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, writes Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling what does he mean work I thought we were saved by grace not by works we are what Paul is saying now that you are saved you're gonna have to spend the rest of your life working on becoming the person that God says you are it's a lifelong pursuit until finally when we see him face to face he's gonna he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus It's a lifelong pursuit culminating with seeing Christ face to face and then Him finishing the job, perfecting us. Again, that's something to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That sounds like we have some responsibility in this thing. What do you think? When you think you've arrived, you haven't. When you think you've arrived, you're in trouble. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to guard our hearts and minds. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what happens when we begin to take our salvation for granted, our trust in our flesh rather than the Spirit. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Philippians 3.3, Paul talking about the law and circumcision. He says we are the circumcision. He's writing to Gentiles, by the way, who weren't circumcised. He is talking about the circumcision of the heart, a spiritual circumcision, which far exceeds the physical one. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Finally, verse 18. Not being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow! What is the answer to being led away with the error of the wicked? Grow! Grow! The quickest way to get off track and get off base is not to grow, not to follow those precepts that we read about in Acts chapter 2. The apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. The preventative medicine for deception and being led astray is spiritual growth. What are we to grow in? The grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We grow in grace by walking with him day, day by day. And we grow in knowledge by being diligent to study his word. Individual time in the Word, one. Two, in interactive Bible study with other believers, Koinonia group, women's Bible study, etc. Thirdly, regular church attendance, sitting under the teaching of a pastor that you know and trust. Hebrews 10.25, New King James, not forsaking the assembling, together, uh, assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Even in the first century, there were already believers who stopped going to church. But exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day, big D, the day of the Lord, what we've been talking about. Do you see it approaching? We see it approaching a lot closer up than those Christians did 2,000 years ago, and yet they expected Christ at any moment. But we certainly see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews, whether you believe it's Paul or not, is saying that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and yet many have. Many did, and many have. I want to read it from the Amplified Bible. I hardly ever use that, but it's really good here. Not forsaking our meeting together as believers for worship and instruction, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more faithfully as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. This verse applies to us now more than it ever has before. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and forever. And what Peter is saying here, I believe, I have my own way of saying it. I like to put it like this. It's all about Him. It's all because of Him. And it's all for Him. To Him be the glory both now and forever. At the end of the day, everything that we have studied here in Second Peter and all the other scriptures, it's about Him. It's because of Him and it's for Him. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen, Peter says. So be it. Let all these things be done according to God's will, his plan, and his purpose. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this awesome study. First and second, Peter. Lord Peter didn't write a lot of books of the New Testament, but the ones that he wrote were really, really good, and that's because your Holy Spirit is the one who wrote them through him. Father, help us to take these words to heart. They are valuable, they are precious, they are meaningful. Lord, may we all here today be found in Him, by Him, in peace, without spot and blameless. And we know that that can happen because the blood of Christ washes us from all sin. Thank you, Father God. As we celebrate Thanksgiving this week and this weekend, more than anything else, we are thankful for the blood of Christ which has been poured out for the remission of our sins. And as a result, we can be forgiven and we can live forever with you, Father. Thank you for salvation, for the precious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.